HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. You're listening to In The Drink, on heritageradionetwork.org. I am your host, Joe Campanelli, and I am so excited for today's show. I should let you guys know that this is actually going to be a pre-record. We usually tape live at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays, uh, but today we're, we're just recording a little bit early because I'm so excited that uh, someone who I look up to, I get a lot of my personal information about wine from, uh, is here in the studio with us, and uh, he is uh, he is visiting New York for a short time, and so uh, we have Ian Dagata in the studio with us tonight, and uh, I'm so excited that he has made some time to uh, to to talk to us. Uh, for those of you who don't know Ian, he is the senior editor of Venice. We actually recently had Antonio Galoni on the show, which was a great episode. You can find that uh, about five or ten episodes ago. Uh, really fascinating guy, uh, where he writes mostly on the wines of Italy, Canada, France, and Germany, as well as some restaurant reviews, um, uh, though I'm most familiar with, with Ian's Italy writing. I've been following for a long time. He's also the scientific director of Vin Italy International Academy and the scientific advisor to Vin Italy International. I know that Ian is in town right now because he's going to be teaching a week-long course on Italian wine that top 
top-notch wine professionals, including Jeff Porter, who runs the Battalion Bastianich uh, restaurant group. That's how good this is. Uh, Jeff Porter is someone that I look up to, who I think knows a ton about Italian wine. He's going to this course because he wants to learn more. So Ian's in town for that. Uh, uh, or Je- Ian's in town for that. Ian also has a degree in medicine and applies his scientific background to wine. He wrote a wine book, uh, one of the few really great Italian wine books, all about the native grapes of Italy. Um, I'm sure I'm, I'm missing a lot more. You also work with NYU. Actually, we met at NYU years ago. I was just a wet-nosed student uh, uh, at doing the Food Studies Master's Program and with Mitchell Davis Absolutely. and Lisa yeah. Sasson. Yeah. And we came uh, and visited you in Rome, and you taught us uh, a class on Italian wine. And that was very important in my wine education and my diving deeper into Italian wine. Anyway, thank you for being here in the studio. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, an honor, a pleasure, and I'm really happy to be here. It's always a thrill. Thanks. <laughs> How did you get in? Uh, you know, I, I know a little bit about about uh, your your history, that the story where, you know, you, uh, you were drinking wine with some friends at a, a local Roman uh, restaurant, a casual restaurant, and the producer, uh, uh, the, the restaurateur brought you out to some vineyards who had some interesting, uh, interesting grapes. But how do you take it from that, from drinking wine with friends, to becoming a professional, to, to, be, to writing about this? You got a degree in medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, how, where, where, when did the writing, when did the professional start? Well, I actually wanted to really make wine my life's uh, goal and work uh, right from the start. Ever since I came across uh, my epiphany and, and discovered wine. But back then, you know, it was very hard to survive as a wine writer. I needed to do something else. And uh, I love kids. I became a pediatrician. Everybody in my family is more or less a doctor. So it was a normal step. But I always wanted to work with wine. And even though I, I studied towards uh, getting a degree, I always did wine full time. I'm not married. I don't have kids. So I was able to devote most evenings, Saturdays, Sundays. Uh, to wine, visiting wineries, uh, writing for whoever would let me write at first. <laughs> it's, it's a tough haul. But after a while, it just everything started falling into place, and I was able to, to, to quit uh, my real job and, and go to wine full-time, and, and it's been great. It's, my mother didn't talk to me for six months. She was so upset. <laughs> but, uh, but now it's, it's, it's all good. It's, it's very, very very, I guess I guess no matter where you are, mothers like to say, my son, the doctor. Oh, absolutely. You know, that generation, you know, they really only understand, you know, things like medicine and lawyers and, and architects and engineers. Even software or computer stuff is foreign to that generation. So you got you to gotta understand where they come from. But at some point, if you're successful or if you're doing well, they, they, they end up being happy for you. And, uh, and for me, it was just a big deal. You know, I... Uh, I uh, had never really cared that much for wine. Then one day, uh, some uh, friends uh, came over to the house. They wanted to drink. My father had a cellar. My father was a psychiatrist. He never wanted us to uh, to drink wine because he was worried about alcoholism. And so I grew up really drinking water. But he did have a cellar because he was a doctor, and his patients gave him a lot of wine. And he must have had very nice patients because they gave him what I now realize were good wines. And my friends came over. They wanted to drink wine. My father always talked about Barolo and, and Gattinara. So I didn't really know what I was doing, but I went down to the cellar. I was looking for one of those wines, and I just so happened that I picked up Barolo 71, which was a great vintage. Wow. And it didn't take me long to figure out that it was better than anything I'd ever tasted, and that sealed the deal. And also, you need to have luck. I, I really believe in fate, you know, and uh, 
uh, it just so happens that my uh, maybe best Canadian friend or one of my best Canadian friends, his father was head of the rare wine and spirits uh, monopoly in, in Toronto, Canada. And so these people had major wines. And so I went to their house the next day and had a 61 Bordeaux, another great vintage. And again, uh, luck always plays a role because another one of my friends, his uncle was a huge German wine buff. And so the third great wine I had three days in a row was a 76 um, Auslese ice wine because back then you had that, that classification uh, from the Mosul. And so I had three great wines three days in a row. And then I went to my parents and said, hey, listen, guys, I want to I wanna talk about wine. I want to write about wine. And... Uh, and I'll, I'll I mean, you knew what you wanted to do because I was oh, in yeah. this list when when we first met. You don't remember yeah. left a big impression on me. Oh no, I actually uh, do remember. I got to tell you, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt, but really, I, I absolutely remember, <laughs> and I absolutely remember. And not only do I remember, but you'll be happy to know that Mitchell Davis, who I'm actually going to see tomorrow night, no, <laughs> absolutely, uh, Mitchell Davis actually one day wrote me an email soon after. Uh, after that time that we met in Rome, actually in Florence and Rome. Right. And he said, you know, hey, two of our students uh, have opened up a restaurant where the list is made up of native grape. Wines made from native grapes. That's right. So absolutely. We've been following your career, young man. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and we're very proud of you. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, absolutely. it's very influential. I think, you know, having that passion for the indigenous grape. When you're early on in your career, like good wine just tastes good. But then when you, I, I, I think after learning from you and understanding what a distinctive wine is that speaks of the place it comes from, what that means and how it's seeped in the history that, I mean, that was super important and important for me. Oh, you're uh, kind. Thank you. I just, I'm glad that it rubbed off and didn't put you all, all to sleep. <laughs> I can't remember, but you must have just like a photograph. I mean, when, you know, do, do you feel like you have a, a, a memory beyond what most people do? Do you feel like you have a photographic memory? As we, you know, when I talk to you about wine, you can rattle off things that seem so easy to you. Like, I'm taught, like, like as if I was like, mm-hmm. all right, so these are my cousins and this is my uncle. But, mm-hmm. like, these are, like, the, you know, very specific facts about wine that certainly you don't talk about every day. I, you know, I don't know if, that's, if, if it's a real photographic memory. It's interesting. You know, people who have a photographic memory actually do have a photographic memory what they've done is they've done tests whereby they bring people into a room and they show them some photos and uh, a certain number of photos and then they make them come the next day and they show them another series of photos and what it really is is that if you superimpose those second photos on the photos you saw the first day you actually get an image so if you have a truly photographic memory you do remember exactly the photos you saw the day before, mm-hmm. and you have no trouble superimposing the images, and you can tell what was there, be it a scooter, be it a bridge, be it a tree. And so I don't know if I have that, but I have, I have taken tests, and uh, it is an above-average memory, they tell me, but that was a long time ago. That was 20, 20 years ago. And as a matter of fact, ago, yeah. yeah, and as a matter of <laughs> fact, I can't remember. <laughs> so there goes my memory. No, I can't remember where I was on the on the chart, but yeah, it was it was slightly above average, but I don't know what, how, how much. <laughs> so you wrote a, a, a really uh, just fantastic book about uh, the the native grapes of Italy. Uh, what was the your how, how did you get first interested in in these native grapes? And then it just seems like a ton of research. Could you tell me a little bit about the 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 process as to how you how you went about researching yeah. this and writing? You know, I'll tell you, you know, it's, um, I'd like to say that it was, you know, a lot of hard work. And, but in reality, I'm a wine geek. You know? I love wine. And it really is, it really is a companion to, to my life. I've spent the last uh, 25 years visiting wine wineries, meeting producers, 
talking to Psalms and people like you who might have been students before and now are very well uh, known uh, wine personalities. And you know, you listen, you learn, and and you remember, and 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 then you just kind of write these things down. And I've got a a leaning tower of notepads at home where I have all these things. Um, today, of course, I have computers where I store this stuff. And I'll tell you, it's much better because when I go back to those notepads, I want to kill myself because I can't understand half the things I wrote. Because yeah. <laughs> your your writing skills really diminish after you've been to the fifth winery. Uh, but And so, you know, really, it, sure, yeah, there's research involved because you write things down and then you got to look them up. you got to verify. you got to go read the studies. But coming from a medical background, you know, I actually like to read scientific papers. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy it so much. It might sound very boring to people, but I actually enjoy reading a scientific paper and seeing what the authors have written and, and what kind of studies, uh, what kind of um, materials and methods and study objectives they had and, and you can apply you, you that. look at the sources oh i do absolutely i yeah. do i do it's very important because uh, you know recently there's been uh, wine grapes by by Jancis robinson and gia harding and jose vuyamas that a lot of us in the wine trade have and know about and so vuyamas's name has now become a bit more uh, a bit more mainstream but in fact there's many many great grape scientists uh carol meredith of course of uc davis was famous for all the work she did but there's many many others in italy we have people like Marisa fontana and anna schneider and and costantini and 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 pastore and tomasi and 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 these people they may not mean much to the average wine drinker but for those who study grapes and wines and want to know more and, and try to understand how they how they come to be they're they're meaningful people and i enjoy actually reading that stuff and then my job is to turn that maybe somewhat dry scientific stuff in a more manageable and enjoyable mm-hmm. output that then I, I put in my book and hopefully in such a way that people such as yourself enjoy it, talk about it, want to keep reading it, and want to apply that to their everyday lives. lives. And that's great. That's The book is fantastic, not because of what I've written or because of what it's about. It's fantastic because people like it and learn from it. Yeah, You could tell that it's well-researched, but there's also joy in your writing it and, and you care so much about it. Uh, I love wine. I mean, I can talk wine all night long, and and and, and I want to make I want to make it very clear. I love a good Cabernet Franc, a good Pinot Noir, and I mean, you know, I mean, one of my three favorite wines in the world is for sure Chablis, right? So, uh, so no, uh, I love I love wine in general, and I love the stories behind yeah. it. I love the history, and and I know you still like sweet, uh, maybe Alsatian wines and yeah. German wines uh, as well, right? That's my favorite wine in the world. I shouldn't say that, but if I got to die yeah. on a desert island tomorrow, it's, it's so, I'm taking a Baron Laser from the Moselle with it's me. It's so interesting <laughs> that in those uh, two of those three, yeah. I mean, of uh, those really yeah. formative wines, are you still a Bordeaux drinker as well? Absolutely, those three. <laughs> yeah, I love Bordeaux <laughs> and I love Burgundy. So you know, and then you say when they eat grapes, well. I mean, the fact is, it, they're, they're first among equals, right? I mean, I, I could just go on and on. And, of course, I love Barolo, uh, like any self-respecting Italian. <laughs> and so, no, I just, uh, I guess, I guess, I guess uh, I've never met a wine I really didn't like. <laughs> yeah. What do you think are some of the ways that, what are some of the barriers to really better understanding Italian wine? Before we got started, you were... You were telling me uh, how you feel that people shouldn't talk about the Trebbiano grape or the Malvasia grape because there's really um, eight, 18 Malvasias and yep. eight Trebbianos yep. or something yep. like that. Uh, uh, how, how do people really get into it and really kind of understand that when you have these challenges with, with the labeling that Trebbiano and Abruzzo 
is not Trebbiano in Tuscany, and even in Abruzzo, there's, you know, totally. incorrect labeling and, and all that. You're right. I mean, you know, Italy is the land. I mean, God love Italy. It's, it's the land of organized chaos, you know. I mean, if it isn't complicated, we Italians, we like to make it even more complicated. <laughs> and the more complicated, the better. I always joke around that you never, never ask two Italians for directions to go somewhere because they start arguing over the quickest way to get there. And 30 minutes later, you're still waiting for them <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> so, no, no. Um, so, yeah, it's tough. You know, the main thing is that... Um, all kidding, all kidding aside is uh, there never has really been much study devoted to Italian wine. And in fairness, there wasn't much of a reason, right? Up until the 1970s, Italian white wines oxidized almost immediately. They were mm-hmm. fun when you were in Frascati or fun if you were in Orvieto. But six months later, you wouldn't have wanted to drink them anymore. You know, French wines are great. They've always been very well made. Uh, there's a plethora of books on uh, on, on French wines. We were talk- you mentioned earlier Bordeaux. Well, you know, there's just so many fantastic books on Bordeaux. And all the great wine personalities we can think of, be it Stephen Spurrier, be it Michael Broadbent, Oz Clark, Clive Coates, all these people have, have written about French wines. So there is a really, uh, there, there are myriad books on French wine, and you can learn and you can become a French wine expert, or at least feel more comfortable. Uh, Hugh Johnson, of course, and so on and so forth. Uh, in Italian wine, unfortunately, we don't have that. There are very few really good books on Italian wine, and what there are are outdated. So if you think that, uh, you know, books like um, like Vino Italiano by Bastianich and Lynch or or From Barolo to Zbibo by Belfrage really are still today mm-hmm. maybe two of the best wine books we have in Italian wines, and, and, and they're old in some respects, then you realize what the problem is. And what that means is that whereas everybody needs, everybody knows everything there is to know or, or they can learn about Red Burgundy, Bordeaux, and and. and and the Pinots, that's not the thing, that's not the same thing with Italy. And, and yeah, your example is a good one. If you ask a person what he's drinking, he or she will say, this is a Pinot Blanc or a Pinot Gris. They're holding a glass of white wine in their hands. Or they might say, this is a Pinot, but because they have a glass of red wine in their hands, so everybody understands it's Pinot Noir. But if it's a white wine, they will clearly say, this is a Pinot Blanc or a Pinot Gris. Unfortunately, when it comes to Italian wine, that same person, it can be an MS, a master sommelier, it can be a master of wine, it can be a real expert. That person will say, this is a Trebbiano, or that's a lovely Malvasia. And the reason they say that is because they just don't know enough about them. But the fact is, uh, as, as you were saying, Malvasia and Trebbiano, they don't exist. They don't exist. Malvasia, we have 17 Malvasias. We have about eight Trebbianos. We have 17 Lambruscos. You know, most people think Lambrusco is one wine, and that's not true at all. If you have... A wine uh, called Lambrusco di Sorbara. Lambrusco di Sorbara is made with the Lambrusco di Sorbara grape variety. That's actually a pink wine. It looks like a rosé because Lambrusco di Sorbara has very little in the way of pigments. And it's a very light, very perfumed Lambrusco. But if I serve you a wine called Lambrusco Grasparossa, which is made with the Lambrusco Grasparossa variety, the thing is purple. The thing is very tannic, uh, very rich and dense. You would never think they're the same wine, and in fact, they're not. They're made with two completely different grapes. It's very much like comparing Cabernet Sauvignon to Pinot Noir. They're different, and hence the wines are going to be different. We just need people to learn more about Italian wines via the grapes that make them. And when that happens, uh, Italian wines will have uh, a better fighting chance. And I I think I know what you're going to say about this, but when you talk about the different Lambruscos, are they different clones? Uh-huh. Are they actually individual different grapes, or are they sort of a sub-variety of, of a grape, the way that like a Labrador and a Black yeah, Lab yeah. and a Brown Lab are, yeah? Totally. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fascinating subject. There are lots of varieties in Italy that are very closely related, 
and they're members of a family, and uh, uh, there are others that are very un- unrelated, even though they have the same name. A very good example are the Grecos. Mm-hmm. The Grecos are completely unrelated. They all have the same name because back in Roman times, uh, Greek wines were considered the best. Everybody wanted to make and, and sell Greek wines, so they named everything Greco. Uh, same thing in the Middle in the Middle Ages and, and later in the 17th, 18th century. Malvasias were very famous, and everybody named their grapes Malvasia, even though they weren't Malvasias. A very good example is Vermentino. Vermentino, in France, it's called Rolle, but it's also called Malvoisie Gros Grain, because that Mal- Malvoisie would be the French version of Malvasia. If you go to Val d'Aosta, which is a beautiful region in northwestern Italy, it's the French part of Italy right there in the Alps, you might find a wine called Malvoisie de Nusse. Nusse is a little town where the Malvoisie is made. And in fact, that's not a Malvoisie either. That's actually Pinot Grigio. It's made with a Pinot Gris grape. But in fact, 300 years ago, nobody could care less right. about Pinot Grigio. Everybody wanted Malvoisie. And so they called this grape Malvoisie de Nusse. Today, if there was the Malvoisie grape, they'd probably call it Pinot Grigio because Pinot Grigio sells. It sells a lot more than Malvoisie. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so so what, change. what are we to do then? I mean, everyone, obviously everyone should, should get your book. Uh, I think it's an incredible resource. And Thank you. Anytime that I'm uh, speaking about wine, I, I reference it to make sure that I'm Thank up you. to Thank date. You. Uh, it's true. I, I, I'm up to date on it. And even... Uh, even wines that I'm familiar with or grapes that I feel more familiar with, it, I find that it's just it's just great. Um, but what what should we, do you know of any books that are in the pipeline that are coming out that that are soon? What are, what are resources? I think everyone should also read Venice. Should read. I think that uh, I, I look at your articles. There's I go to Abruzzo quite frequently. I love it. But I've learned quite a bit about Abruzzo from reading about your very thorough article on Venice about Abruzzo. Oh, thanks. You're so kind. Well, Venice is a very good source, and there are other sources too. Uh, where you can learn a lot. I think the wine writing and the magazines and, and the newsletters is better than it ever was. Mm-hmm. I myself, I read wine magazines, be it Wine Spectator, be it The Canner, be it something else. I, uh, I, I, I really enjoy what my colleagues write, and, and it's all yeah. very, very interesting. I think, uh, I think, you know, there may be other books in the pipeline. I'm sure there are. You know, unfortunately right now, the print medium is, 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 is living such a hard, hard moment. Yeah. So I'm sure it's going to be all via internet and e-books, but that's fine. I think uh, I myself, I'm writing a second book on, on Italy's uh, terroirs, very much in the same mold as, as native wine grapes. And hopefully that will bring uh, more information and, and make Italian wine a little bit, hopefully, clearer. Italy's just, you know, like I said earlier, it's a chaotic country, it's a complicated country, and, and uh, it takes a little while to um, get to know Italian wines. But with, uh, with a little patience and, and with the right uh, sort of guidance, uh, it's very fathomable, and it's uh, a lot of fun be- because no country in the world offers you so many different aromas and flavors. You know, if you think that uh, roughly 30% of all the wine grapes in the world are, are in fact, Italian, um, you know, Italy makes... Wow, it's crazy to think about. Yeah, it is. You know, think about that. I mean, think about that. Italy's a country that doesn't need ABC clubs, you know, people getting together who drink anything but Chardonnay or anything but Cabernet because we've got about 600... Um, Recognized varieties, uh, 500 actually, uh, genetically identified varieties. And when I wrote the book, now it's already three or four years old. So I, I stopped at about 460. But in reality, there's about 400 that have been genetically, about every year, there's about 10 new ones that get, mm-hmm. that get identified and, and registered officially. Um, and most experts believe there's another 500 waiting to be identified. So, so that's, that's you know, roughly 500 to 1,000 grape varieties from which to make wine. And that is more than than France, Spain, and Greece put together. So Italy offers um, 
wine made from about 500 different grapes. You know, California makes wine from about 15 or 20 grapes mainly, and uh, in France for another 15 or 20 as well. So it, it's not to say that one is better than the other. I mean, like I said, I love French wine. I love California wines. Uh, but, you know, Italy offers... And there's good and there's bad, because we go back to what we were saying earlier. Because there are so many different grape varieties, so many different names, so many different aromas, so many different menu profiles, it's a bit more complicated. Mm. You know you know what you're getting when you order a bottle of Chardonnay. It's sure, of course, it's going to be different. Napa is different from Chablis, and if you order Cabernet Sauvignon, it's going to be very different if it comes from Napa or if it comes from Sonoma. But more or less, you know what you're getting yourself into. Unfortunately, if you order a Recantina from Veneto... Or if you order a uh, Pelaverga Piccolo from Piedmont or a Grillo from Sicily, it may not be totally obvious what you're getting yourself into, and right. it takes a little work. <laughs> if it's a good one, though, I find that a lot of times they end, end up costing less because they don't have that kind of name recognition, too. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, right. sure, I'm sure you actually you actually probably know even better than I, and hopefully that, that, is, that is true and that should be true, where you can get a wine that offers something totally different, uh, so it's not boring, so it's not already has been, done that, and often cheaper. And that's the great thing about China wine. It really is inexpensive. You know, you were talking about Abruzzo. Abruzzo is a fantastic place for great, great red wines made with the multiple channel grape, mm-hmm. very fun wines made with the Trebbiano Abruzzese grape. And they often they often cost less than, 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 than 20 bucks. You know, you can get them for 12 to $15. They're juicy, they're fresh. They're very food-friendly because Italian wine in generally has high acidities. And there's great wines. I mean, there's not much better that even Italy offers than a good Montepulciano or a good Trebbiano d'Abruzzo for a summer day, uh, a picnic, or a barbecue. And that's one of Italy's strengths. Great wine, lots of flavor, at very reasonable cost. Because if you're paying 15 or $16, that, that's doable for right. most people, right? I just went to a uh, seminar that you did on uh, the cruise of of Barolo or most of the cruise of Barolo it was fantastic and you were uh, you were talking about how Canubi is actually way too large uh, and uh, there's some areas of Barolo that that are that are large and, and deserve to be sort of understood better uh, in smaller fragments I think that uh, the same can really be said. Now, obviously, the the wines don't, you know, there aren't as many outstanding wines uh, in, in Abruzzo. But to me, it's so ridiculous to think that in the north of Abruzzo, where the mountains go all the way to the water, it's the same appellation as the south of Abruzzo, where it's totally flat and they have nothing to do with each other. Maybe you're like two hours inland and it's flat versus on the coast in the north. And that's still Trebbiano d'Abruzzo and it's still Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. That's a very valid point and, uh, and it's true. So that's the problem that you have with regional-wide appellations or country-wide appellations. On the one hand, it's much easier to understand. You know, you tell people, this is a wine from Abruzzo, this is a wine from Australia, and everybody gets it. This mm-hmm. is an Australian Shiraz. But you and I, uh, and not because we're wine geeks, I, I think it should be easy to understand for most people. In fact, that really doesn't mean much because you have Margaret River in Australia that's cool. You've got Tasmania that's even cooler. You've got Barossa where it's hot. You've got Kunawara where you have red soils. And, and so the, the wines from the same grape variety are going to be extremely different in all those places. In fact, you may not have wines from the same grape variety because it's too cold for the same grape variety to do well. So I think, uh, I think you're right. I think it's, uh, it, it might seem initially uh, as if we're complicating things by creating 
sub areas and sub zones in a region. But ultimately, that's adding value to the wine, you know, because you're saying to people, hey, listen, this wine comes from a specific sub area of Abruzzo. Mm-hmm. This wine comes from a specific sub area of Australia. And therefore, it has these specific characteristics that the wines that come from the other areas don't have. They're very good wines. They have other characteristics. But this is why you need to pay a bit more. And, and frankly, uh, you pay more for a Barossa or a, or a Margaret River wine than you would for an Australia wine, even yeah. though they're all Australian. I guess the, the piggybacking question to that is what can be done on the legislative front to to assist with, uh, uh, I, I feel like obviously in, in some of these zones we can we can lower yields. Yields might still be too high, uh, but other than that, what can be done is is subzone like do people should people know Loretto Apertino Abruzzo? I think so. But uh, <laughs> well, I think so too. But you and I are wine geeks. I think I think the main the main the first step is for politicians and for those who make the laws and the legislation. They need, to, they need to be more comfortable with the fact that human beings are inherently curious. I think mm-hmm. the great thing about, about human beings is we love to learn. We love to learn. We really do. And even when we come home dead tired from work, we still pick up a book and we'll still read and we still want to learn. I think that's really something that characterizes uh, men and women everywhere. So I think that uh, people who make the laws and the legislation just have to have a bit more faith in the power uh, that that learning has. We like to learn. We go to school ever since we, we can remember. All we do is learn in our lives. We learn on the job. And I think that provided you don't make something too complicated and you turn, we were saying Abruzzo, okay, unless you go and turn Abruzzo into 45 different appellations, which would be insane, mm-hmm. uh, if, you, if you pick the six, the five, the four that make sense, one by the seaside, one at 3,000 feet above sea level, that it's easy for somebody to understand. You're saying, hey, listen, this, is, this, is, this wine is made with Montepulciano. It's a great Cabernet Sauvignon. It's going to smell of red cherries and violets. But, you know, you're getting this one. It's made by the seaside, so it's, the grapes are a little riper. So the red cherry is a little, it's a little riper. It's almost like a jam, and it's got a little bit more alcohol. And, you know, instead, this Montepulciano wine is made in Abruzzo, but it's made at 3,000 feet. It's much colder there. So you have a little less alcohol. The wine's a little leaner. It's a little fresher. So, you know, it's still going to smell of violets. It's still going to smell of red cherries. And you pick what you like. And that's very easy. And, and at least that, I think, should always be done. If, if, you, if you break it down in five or six or ten areas, then that's reasonable. And, and I think that should be done because it adds value to the product. I agree. Uh, on that note, we're going to just take a quick break. We'll be back with more with Ian Dagada right after this. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. And we're back with Ian Dagata. 
of uh, Venice, of Venitaly, of Collisioni, which we didn't get to talk about yet. Also, the NYU Master's Program in Food Studies, where uh, where we first met. Um, uh, Ian, I feel like I could talk to you for a long time. But something that I really have been curious to ask you about uh, uh, is... You know, you, you wrote this book on the native wine grapes of Italy, and anytime I think about uh, uh, what happened during uh, Phylloxera and the years past with the world wars and all sorts of um, just total tragedies happening to, to vineyards in, in Italy and how much diversity there used to be. And it's amazing that there's still this amount of diversity still exists in Italy. There, there must have been... Uh, just a, a, multi, a multiplier of, of additional grapes. Totally. Uh, have there have there been any grapes over the years that you've read about in historical texts that you said, wow, that sounds really interesting. I wish that I could find this grape. I wish that I could I could taste this grape. And uh, have you have any, any stories like that? Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, that's true of, I mean, I, I love wine grapes, but I have this sort of mentality that I apply to other things, too. For example, uh, I love trout. I love trout fishing. And uh, there are some trout that have disappeared over the years. And, uh, and it's a shame. They're gone. They're extinct. And then we have some trout that are endangered. For example, uh, the Gila trout. That's uh, a south, uh, southwestern American trout that, um, uh, that uh, I'd love to catch. But right now you can't because it's protected and it should be. And so that sort of mentality I also carry over to wine grapes. So, yeah, I, I love uh, to read about old wine grapes that now may no, may no longer be, be, be there. But I hope, of course, that they are forgotten in some mm-hmm. vineyard and, and that they may not be extinct. And anyways, to answer your question, yeah, uh, there was one grape that I was always fascinated with in Val d'Aosta called Roussin de Morget. Morget is a little town. Uh, ri- the, the name's written Morgex with an X. It's Morget because that's the French part of Italy. And that's an area very famous for a white aperitif called Blanc de Morget, which I love. And and the, the area really has no red grapes. But in fact, it does. Historically, it has this very light-colored red grape that gives basically a rosé wine. It's called Roussin de Morget. It's a different grape than the Roussin grape. It's a different grape also in Val d'Aosta. And, uh, you know, one day, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I was walking the vineyards with uh, the technical director of a, of a social co-op up there. And he said, hey, Ian, what do you think that is? And he showed me the, the, a little plant growing, a couple of little plants growing. And I recognized it right away uh, as Roussin de Morget. And not because I'm a, I'm a super-duper wine expert, but just because the leaf of this grape variety is so typical. It's a very jagged leaf that I realized right away what it was. So I was really excited to see Roussin de Mourget still survive because I thought it had gone the way of the dodo. So I asked the guy right away, well, why don't you make wine from it? Why don't you try making wine? And he said, you know, Ian, I've got so many other things to do right now, and I'm not really convinced. And so he wasn't interested. About, about five years ago, uh, a new director came in, and so I went and visited, and I came, uh, I came out with the same idea. And this guy, Nicola del Negro, who's the technical director of the Cave uh, du Vin Blanc, uh, the Morget and La Salle, um, now called the Cave du Mont Blanc, uh, was interested, and he's been super great about it. He's gotten his uh, the members. There's about sixty members in the social co-op. He 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 asked all of them wow. to look at their vineyards, and about eight of them had this grape still, and now they're making it. We're, they're making it. That's we, amazing. We, we absolutely. We went <laughs> through that. we went through three or four years uh, of, of trials. At first, we tried making a red. Uh, 
a red still wine out of it, not very good, very acid, no fruit. And so since he has lots of uh, uh, experience with secondary fermentation in the bottle and they make sparkling wines, they said, when well, we turn this into a rosé sparkler. And, and that's been very effective. It works. And uh, they're now making a sparkling wine from it. There's only a few bottles made a year. Hopefully production will increase. Mm-hmm. And, they've, uh, and they've built, uh, uh, they've planted an experimental vineyard with dif- different looking Roussin de Morges, different biotypes. Wow. So that's a project that uh, has brought back to life. A, there's um, a hotelier in Ischia, a five-star hotel um, called the Regina Isabella. It's maybe Ischia's most beautiful hotel. And one day I was talking to the owner. He's a super nice guy. He's very laid back. And uh, I said, you know, you've got a lot of real cool grape varieties on Ischia that nobody does anything with. And why don't we try to bring them back and make a mono-variety wine from them? And, and God bless his heart, he was actually interested. He loves the island. And he said, sure, why don't we do it? Uh, since nobody else is really you know, thinking of doing anything with these grapes before they disappear. And since his, his uh, wine director has a brother who is a trained viticulturalist, he put those two guys in charge. And this hotelier actually bought the winemaking equipment for them. Wow. And they went out and they scoured the vineyards of the island of Ischia. Ischia is a beautiful island right off the coast of Campania, off Naples. And they identified a bunch of different grapes, like uh, Cannamela and uh, Granaccia and San Lunardo. And, and they made wine. And the first year, it was okay. The second year was a little tougher. And so, but the project had started. And they were making wine. The wine was palatable. And so they took the next step. And now they've got Luigi Moyo involved, the world-famous wine consultant and winemaker, uh, who makes a lot of very famous, who consults for a lot of very famous Italian wineries. And now he's actually following the project. Mm. And the project is just going places. And I'm very, very happy because these grapes were not making wine before. They had been forgotten. They ran the risk of extinction. And instead, now they've come back and people are making wine from them. So that's really cool. That is really cool. It really is. It's great that you're part of that process. Yeah, and it's totally free. I don't get paid at all. I pay my own expenses, my own travel. I just want these grapes to come back to life, and that's and that's payment enough, and I'm so, so happy. Not all the grapes are always as great as we'd like them to be. Of the th- <laughs> I wonder if any of them like came out and you're like, oh, maybe that's better to let go. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go quite that far because yeah. it just hurts me to say that. Yeah. But yeah, of the three Ischia grapes that, that have been identified, I think two were really good. I think one might might be better suited as a blender. Mm-hmm. Roussin de Morger, I think, is great. If you like high acid, rosé sparklers, uh, and I've taken that now because it's a five-year project. I've taken it in wine tastings in Germany, in the States, in Italy, and people love it. So that's that's really good news. That's really good news. Yeah. And I yeah. wonder if, if after being in a place for a long period of time, the grape adapts in a sort of way, the grapevine adapts in a sort of way to... Uh, I don't know, not totally. necessarily more delicious, but it, there's a certain amount of adaptation that it, it, it feels more comfortable. But, but, that that's a very good point. You know, what, what you need to remember, and this is very important, is when we talk about these native wine grapes, it's not just a geek thing. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's actually instead part of a very natural and eco-friendly agriculture because these grape varieties, they're called native or indigenous for a simple reason that they've lived in the place for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So they are grape varieties that have adapted to a specific climate, a specific soil, and they're really the most ideal grapes to grow there. I mean, sure, you can take Cabernet Sauvignon and plant it anywhere, but in some places, it wasn't there to begin with, and maybe there's a reason why it wasn't there to begin with. Yeah. And now, Ian, if 
if we wanted to learn more in general and learn more specifically from you, yeah, where can where can our listeners get more? Well, I mean, I, I want to make clear that you can learn about a fine wine in very in very many different places. You know, WSCT courses are fantastic, very and and if, if I had to start all over again, I'd probably want to become an MS or or an NW for sure. I'd I'd love to be a master sommelier. I'd love to be a master wine. I'm too old now, and and I just gotta <laughs> I just gotta do <laughs> what I can do. But I I totally advise people to to go ahead and, and, and study and, and learn more. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I am very happy and proud among the things I do to work for Vinidly, and we've created this certification course on Italian wines that's open to wine professionals and even wine lovers. Um, what we do is uh, you can go on the website, the Vinidly website, vinidly.com, and then just click on, uh, on VIA, V-I-A, which is Vinidly International Academy, and there you have all the information pertaining, or you just go onto the vinidlyacademy.com uh, website, and uh, all the information is there. Really, all it takes is to send in a CV. We do the course every year before Vinitaly. Mm-hmm. We actually uh, pay uh, a sort of uh, a sort of uh, uh, a small amount that goes towards travel. So people fly all over the world to Verona uh, from places as far as Hong Kong, Singapore, the States, Canada, and and, p- and most of their travel expenses are actually taken care of wow. uh, by by. Not all of them, of course, but then the hotel and uh, and and uh, at least up until now it's been like that. So it's actually a pretty good deal. Uh, you get to do five days right before Vinidly, and then you can stay on uh, and watch Vinidly, see Vinidly, participate in the various tastings, and uh, go around to all the booths, and we organize that for them. So that's a re- plus. Vinidly also does tours. We go to Hong Kong, we go to Shanghai, we go to Chica- uh, Chicago, uh, Houston, Miami, New York, San Francisco. And the Vinitaly, um, in, in collaboration with ICHA, the Trade Commission uh, of Italy, we uh, organize also what we call uh, wine seminars, and they're like masterclass tastings, and we do about two or three, and those, those are, are free, and they're always free, and they're open to professionals, and, and uh, you're very welcome to come to those, and these, these seminars will, will discuss uh, the Cruz of Barolo, or French Accorta, or, or wines made from native grapes, or the wines of Sicily, and it's a great way to learn. Yeah. All right, Ian, I want to thank you so much, uh, and I'd also say, please, uh, you should, definitely should subscribe to Venice and, and read Ian's articles on... Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah, thanks, and I, I really want to say that uh, I love Venice, and uh, Antonio Galloni's been very kind to me, and uh, very understanding. He lets me he he really he's given me a chance also to write about sometimes obscure wines and mm-hmm. God love them because it takes courage to do that. It it's very does, yeah. it, it's very easy to write about Brunello and Barolo and and of course everybody wants that. But I think it's very very important to also write about the lesser grape varieties because if not nobody does and and, and people have to sell these wines mm-hmm. and and if you never write about them it's hard nobody knows anything about them. And so that's great. And also, you know, Venice, there's a lot of very, very great wine writers. Steve Tanzer, from whom I learned a lot, I have no difficulty in saying that if I'm a good uh, wine writer today, I really owe Steve a lot. Steve Tanzer has been fantastic and has helped me a lot. But we have other people like David Schilnack, maybe the, maybe the greatest expert, or one of the greatest experts in German wines, and Josh Reynolds, and, and so many other people. So it's really cool, and uh, everything's good. I'm happy. I love wine, and I'm very <laughs> blessed to be doing what I do, be it with Italy, be it with Colisione, be it with Venice. I'm just happy, and, and thanks for having me here today. Thank you, and, and I'm happy as well, and I think that a lot of my own enjoyment of, of wine and, and through understanding it better, I feel like you can enjoy it even more, for me at least, uh, it's, it's come from, from your inspiration and knowledge. So thank you for, thank you for that. No, thank you. You, you. you don't know how happy I am to see you 
and uh, and see the success you've had and what you've done and it really gives a meaning to my own existence so thank you wow i'm I, I, i'm speechless thank you uh oh you just made my uh everything you made my night <laughs> uh thank you ian so much thank you so much for listening uh dave tadishore who produced this show you are the best uh help was provided by Haley crane and katie morrisman wadler is the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. Uh, you guys should also think about joining, uh, becoming a member for Heritage. Uh, I believe it's tax, de- tax deductible, and you help um, public radio. Uh, all of our uh, shows are free. Um, there's just great shows about about food, and you help support Heritage uh, Heritage's mission. So, uh, thanks again for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.